you have your Bibles, open them to Joshua 24. It's the last chapter. So if you're new to a Bible, just go to Genesis, keep turning to the right, and six books in, you'll find Joshua. And it's the last chapter, Joshua chapter 24, that we'll give our attention to today. I want to tell you about a gift that a godly man gave to our family last Christmas. It's Tracy's dad. Uh, we referred to him as Pawpaw. And he had a great idea. And it was a great gift. The previous year, prior to last Christmas, he profited from a daily devotional that he just walked through over the course of that year. And then he bought a copy of that devotional for Tracy and her brother. That's the only two siblings and for each person in our household. So counting Papa and Nana, he paid for 12 copies of the same book, wrote a different person's name in the front page, gave it to everybody. Then our low tech savvy baby boomer generation, 70 something year old Papa proceeded to start a family text thread, including all those people. And starting one week after Christmas, January of this year, every single day since January 1st, maybe with a couple of exceptions, there's been a series of biblically rich, gospel drenched, spiritually edifying comments on that family shared text thread. Various people have commented on that and it truly has been a gift. It's been a blessing to all of us and it's helped in a small way to point each of us time and time again to Christ. There's something about the sweetness of that idea and that gift in that way that we've all benefited from, but the special, the secret sauce, the special sweetness is because Pawpaw's leading it. It was his idea. He is by far the most substantial regular contributor. Uh, just about every day, you're gonna get a Pawpaw insight. But the sweetness is not only sentimental. It's not, oh, how cute Pawpaw's using technology. And it's not only sweet because he's an old man sending daily texts that give us spiritual warm fuzzies. It's more weighty. It's more weighty because of everything Papa brings to the equation. With no exaggeration, he's the most godly man anybody in my family has known. He's maintained a close walk with the Lord I know a lot of godly people, praise God. He's done that for as long a period of time as anybody we know. Consistent track record, not perfect, but faithful over a long haul. My kids have never known what it's like not to have an eminently godly grandfather. A prayer warrior, a humble servant, he loves and prays for his wife, he serves her, amazingly with the grace of Christ's love, his kids, his grandkids, know what it's like to have a life-giving, prayerful, patient, good man. And we all aspire to be more like him. When he shares words of biblical truth into our lives daily, it makes a bigger dent because it's coming from somebody who we all know practices what he preaches. That's sort of how Joshua 24 works. Instead of reading it straight through, we'll read parts of it as we work our way through it under four headings. And before we do that, let's ask one more time for the Lord's help. Father, we ask that we would not be so foolish as to ignore the truly godly voices in our life. And when you mean to speak to us through anybody or anything, I pray that we would be very teachable, even if that instruction comes from our proverbial worst enemy. But when it comes through the life and lips of somebody who loves Jesus and loves us, make us all the more eager to hear the help that you want us to have. Do not let us harden our heart, stiffen our neck, do not let us spurn your counsel. Lord, I don't know where everybody in this room is at today in terms of their sensitivity to you, but I'm praying that right here, right now, 
any and every calloused heart would be penetrated by the beauty and the love of Christ. I pray for all who are walking in close fellowship with Jesus, spiritually sensitive, spirit filled. Oh Lord, would you elevate their view of Jesus? We ask this for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. So I mentioned there's four parts to Joshua 24. I see it this way, verses one to 15. That's Joshua's final address to Israel. That part closes with a call to their faithfulness to the Lord. So Joshua 1 to 15, uh, final testimony, final sermon from Joshua to Israel. Verses 16 to 18, Israel's response to that sermon. It's their response to the Lord. Verses 19 to 28, Joshua says, hold up, wait a minute. Godward clarity. Make sure you understand the God I'm talking about before you make big promises about following him. And they solemnize that moment with a covenant. And then finally, Joshua ends by telling us that he's dead and buried. That's the outline, four parts of Joshua 24. Before we delve into the content of the very first part, Joshua's final address to Israel, I want to just set the context, make sure we can see in our mind's eye what's going on. And speaking of seeing, this is a dark room. It's Sunday afternoon. This lighting makes me sleepy. You're pretty dark. I want the lights bright out there and dim up here. I want to see your faces. That's pretty hard for me to do. So if you're going to fall asleep, something I do when I teach different classes other places is if you get sleepy, you can stand up. You can hang out in the corners of the room. Don't fall asleep. Today's worth listening to, not because I'm saying it, but you're about to hear a sermon from a guy named Joshua who knew the one true God. So I want you to see the scene. I want you to notice where it happened, who was present, and what they were in front of. It's all in verse one, let your eyes fall there. Where were they? Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. In the biblical narrative, Shechem is not a random place somewhere tucked away in nowhere Israel. Geographically, it's due north of Jerusalem, if you can kind of picture that in your mind's eye. It's at the center of Israel. It's about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, straight north of Jerusalem. That's where Shechem is. More significantly, it was the place on planet Earth where God showed up to Abraham. He pitched his tent on that piece of dirt and God talked to him in Genesis 12 and said, I'm going to give your descendants this land. In Joshua 24, it happens. They go to that spot and I think they set up the whole tabernacle, Ark of the Covenant, and they have a worship service to the God who spoke to Abraham. That's where they're at. Notice who is there. Verse one goes on to say, a lot of people are there. It's verse one, all the tribes of Israel, the elders of Israel, their heads, their judges, their officers. That same exact specificity of people is listed in the previous chapter. But here there's the additional note, quote, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel. I know sometimes we read the Bible and we miss the forest for the trees. I don't know if you've paid careful attention when you read the New Testament, the book of Acts, and thousands of people are getting saved. And then you read some other pages and it says house church here, house church there. Don't amalgamate that. There's a lot of places in the book of Acts where it says the whole church was together in one place. Thousands of believers. I want you to see this assembly. Twelve tribes probably multiple millions of people in one spot together. So that's where they're at. That's who was there. But notice before whom they're gathered. This is verse one. And they presented themselves before God. The most significant person in Shechem was not Joshua or the millions who made up the 12 tribes of Israel. The most significant person was God. They all presented themselves. One commentator, commentator said before God Undoubtedly, he adds, the Ark of the Covenant must have been there. Well, that's the setting. That's the context. That's who's there. That's where they're at. That's what's happening. Now let's look at the content of Joshua's sermon. This is verses 2 to 13. Joshua highlights five aspects of God's faithfulness in verses 2 to 13. His final sermon, the godly man who had lived his life, practiced what he preached, 
reminds Israel of five ways that God had proven himself faithful to them, faithful to his promises, and ultimately, as we heard a few weeks ago, faithful to himself. Verses two and three, God's faithfulness extends from before Israel was his people. Look at verse two. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him at Isaac. Can you picture that? Can you picture an old man whose name is Terah? He is Abraham's dad. He's got three boys. Haran's not listed here, but Abraham, Nahor, and Haran are his three boys. And can you picture him living in Mesopotamia somewhere with his wife and his three kids, a pagan man in a pagan land worshiping pagan gods? It was probably something like a pyramid. It's called a ziggurat. It's like this kind of pyramid that was in his hometown and Abraham's dad, Terah, on religious occasions would climb up that pyramid, stand on the top of it and worship the sun and the moon. He was a total pagan Gentile. There were no Israelites. And before Israel became Israel, before God called Abraham, when Abraham's dad was worshiping a false God, God was faithful. And Joshua wanted Israel to know that. In highlighting the faithfulness of God to a people that didn't deserve his grace, they weren't looking for God. They didn't even know the one true God existed. They were deceived. They were spiritually lost. Joshua wanted them to know that the one true God takes the initiative to pursue and rescue hellbound sinners. Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan family in a pagan land when God wooed him to himself. The exact same thing is true with a lot of people in this room. I don't know if it's happened to you. Has the God of all grace reached his mighty hand down from heaven into your little heart and pulled you to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he did to Abraham. Has the God of all grace tracked you down when you were living in your sin, awakened you, Proverbs says sin makes you stupid, awakened you to the stupidity and futility of your sin that's actually making you miserable and not happy, and held out to you the beauty and sufficiency of Christ? Has he hunted you down in his mercy and taken you captive by his love and blessed you with the greatest of all blessings, namely himself? That's what happened to Abraham. God was faithful to his people before they became his people. The second thing Joshua says is in verse four, God was faithful to you through incredibly difficult providences. When things go bad, it does not mean God took a nap or fell off his throne. Look at verse four, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau, I gave Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. What a loaded phrase. I'm saying Joshua is telling Israel, God was faithful when hard, hard, hard things happened to our fathers. Just like God chose Abraham, God also chose Jacob, whose name shows up in verse four. He is Abraham's grandson through Isaac. When Jacob became an older man, the Lord blessed him with a quiverful, 12 boys. Could you imagine raising them? 12 boys. <laughs> A lot of problems in that family, a lot of hardship, not the least of which was 11 of those boys being complicit in framing the alleged death of their brother eaten by wild animals. The heartbreak brought on their dad, Jacob, when he thought Joseph, his beloved son, was dead. Add to that, they were starving to death. They were emaciated. You could see their rib cage. They didn't have enough food. They were going to die. They had no hope. There was a famine in the land. They couldn't do anything about it. Can't go down to the local grocery store and get more calories to put into your family system through the dining room table. They were dying and his son was dead. So he thought. 
I love verse four, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. What are you talking about? I'm talking about when you think your boy is dead and you don't have enough food on your table, right then in that moment, God is working his faithful plan to save his people. That son you thought was dead, oh, by the way, is now the vice president of the most powerful country in the world, and God's going to use him to save his people, and that's all part of his good plan. So first, God is faithful even before you know him. Second, God's faithful even when hard things happen. Third, verses five to seven, he's faithful through remarkable expressions of divine deliverance. Verse five, then I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians between the sea upon them uh, and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Remarkable divine deliverance. The cross of Christ proves in the most vivid expose that God does not have to save you from death to still be faithful. When Jesus died on the cross, it proves the point. You can die and God is still faithful. But remarkable divine deliverance in this situation is what Joshua is saying, accentuates the faithfulness of your God. Verse five is a reminder to Israel that their God reduced the most powerful nation on earth to dust. Verse six and seven speak of God destroying the prideful monarch as Israel left Egypt and Pharaoh sent his armies to chase them and he knew that they would be pinned in between them and the Red Sea. God parted those waters and Israel walked across on dry ground and prideful Pharaoh commanded his army to charge forward and to kill them. And when they got into the middle of that dry riverbed, God proceeded to carry out his sovereign plan to destroy them. And he preserved his people, verse seven says, in the wilderness. That's 40 years of impossible survival if God doesn't provide for you every single day, manna and water. Remarkable divine deliverance. And there's not a person in this room, whether we can see it and say it, whether we're ignorant of it or can quantify it, there's not a person in this room that God hasn't been faithful to, to every single moment of your life. No matter what hardship you've faced, that doesn't erase the reality that the beat in your heart and the breath in your lungs is a gift from the faithful God of the universe. God is faithful. Fourth, verse eight, He's faithful even through seasons of your unfaithfulness. Look at verse eight. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. He sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you and I delivered you from his hand. I'm saying the point is God is faithful even through seasons of their, of their faithlessness. See, when Israel got in their own way, which happened a lot, they got in their own way of walking with God. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We've talked about that a lot in the series. It would have taken them about two weeks to walk from Egypt to Israel. It took them 40 years. Why? because they were faithless, because they didn't believe God, because they didn't trust him. So when you give up on him, does he give up on you? Joshua is putting an exclamation behind his sentence to say two letters, no. God is faithful even through seasons of his people's faithlessness. Why did God never give up on his people? That's a core question of the Bible. The answer, said many places, one of my favorite, New Testament, 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. When God makes a promise, he keeps it because he can't do otherwise. He's faithful even when we're faithless. 
Grace Church, I want to say to you at that point, God's not sick and tired of you because you can't get your spiritual act together. He's not looking for an out in his relationship with you. He has zero buyer's remorse. In fact, right here, right now, no matter how your day's been, your week's been, your year's been, he's thrilled that he saved you. He wants you to know his deepest, happy heart of love for you. But if you came here today saying, you know what? I'm like those faithless Israelites. God's been faithful. I've been faithless. He does want you to know if you've wandered from him that he's highlighting in your heart right now examples of his faithfulness to you. He calls it kindness, goodness. He's highlighting that to you. Romans 2, 4 says, He's showing you his kindness to lead you to repentance, not to give you an excuse to remain unfaithful. It's why he sent his son. It's why he burst onto the scene in the gospel of Matthew, the lips of the Lord Jesus spoke the sentence that I'm about to say, if you are weary and heavy laden, just come to me and I will give you rest. The rest that Joshua was enabled to provide for Israel is just a faint foreshadowing of the everlasting rest that Jesus provides to all who embrace him by faith. So verse eight tells us that fourth expression of God's faithfulness, that he's faithful even through seasons of our faithlessness. And then fifth and finally, Joshua told Israel that God was faithful to them in giving them the land of promise. Look at verse 11 and 12, you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Thus, I gave them into your hand. Verse 12, then I sent the hornet before you and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your own sword or your bow. So verse 11 is hearkening back to the crossing of the Jordan River that we dealt with in the beginning of this sermon series. And here in chapter 24, Israel's now standing before the very same Ark of the Covenant that went into those waters and caused them to stand up so Israel could cross on dry land, just like they crossed the Red Sea. And when Israel finally made it into the land of the promise, they were still surrounded by a bunch of problems called 31 kings and all their armies that wanted to destroy them in no short order. How could they possibly dispossess all the inhabitants of the land and take it as their own? There's seven people listed in verse 11, Amorite, Perizzite, Canaanite, Hittite, Girgashite, Hivite, Jebusite. It's the exact same list that's mentioned all the way back in chapter three, verse 10, where God promised, I'm gonna drive all these people out. And now in chapter 24, guess what? He did it. And Joshua's saying, he didn't stutter the first time when he made the promise. He totally fulfilled it and you're now benefiting from it. How dare you? not give him your whole heart in full devotion. He's faithful. Look at verse 13. God's speaking in the first person. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them and you are eating vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. That God accomplishes his sovereign plans by his own power is a major, major theme in the Bible. The taking of the promised land by Joshua and Israel is one of those episodes in scripture that's continually looked back upon by later peoples of God as a fresh reminder for the here and now that we can still trust him today. As you look back on Joshua 24, right now, your heart should swell up with faith in Christ that he's for you and not against you. And if God be for us, who cares who's against us? One of those places where people of God look back on what Joshua was talking about is Psalm 44. I want you to listen to a few verses. Listen to this prayer. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did. With your own hand, you drove out the nations. You planted our fathers, you afflicted the peoples, you spread them abroad for by their own sword, they did not possess the land. 
and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand, your arm, the light of your presence, for you favored them. Do you see what they're saying? God, you did all the work. You did it all by yourself without anybody else's help. That's exactly what verse 13 is accentuating. Well, that's Joshua's sermon. God is faithful times five. And then he gets to application. It's not okay to hear about God, the one true God, and do nothing with it. In fact, that's impossible. There's a response to every presentation of the one true God to your heart, whether you say it or not. No response is a response. And those who are in Christ are invited forever to enjoy the spoils of the victory that your faithful God has won. What would that look like? It's verses 14 and 15. It's the final part of Joshua's sermon. It's his application. Look at verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. After pointing Israel to their faithful God, verses 2 to 13, Joshua now calls them to wholehearted allegiance to this God moving forward. Verse 14, the New American Standard says, in sincerity and truth, serve him sincerely and truly. The ESV renders it in sincerity and faithfulness. It means wholeheartedness. That's what's required. But it includes something very specific. Verse 14, put away all false gods. Put away all false deities that the previous generation served in the wilderness and when they were in Egypt. To worship the Lord fully, Israel needed to be aware not only of past sins, the sins of the false gods their fathers worshiped, but also future trappings. I'm reminded of a story that, you know, maybe legendary, maybe accurate. I know a lot of people were converted Metropolitan Tabernacle under the pre pre preaching of Charles Spurgeon. And the story goes that one day a person came up to him after the service and said, Mr. Spurgeon, thank you so much for that sermon. The Lord saved me today. And Spurgeon was super happy and thankful and praised the Lord. And then proceeded to tell the person something to the effect of, if you don't still love Jesus 10 years from now, you got nothing here today. Joshua wanted these people to understand sincerity and truth. To worship the Lord fully, you've got to put away all those gods that your father served and the gods, look what he says in verse 15, of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. It was a future warning. Before you make your big promise to Jesus about how much you're going to love him and serve him, be warned, when you walk out of this place, there's a bunch of gods out there that are going to be hunting you down. Are you saying no to them? And if you're not ready to say no to them, don't be under the delusion you're ready to say yes to Jesus. As Joshua saw the dangers of defecting from faithfulness to the Lord on every side, past deities, future false gods, Joshua took a clear stand, didn't he? No ambiguity, no flinching, no conditions. No matter if Israel joined him or not. If the whole world went to a proverbial hell in a handbasket, if everybody turned their back on God, Joshua had a spirit-filled resolution in this moment, and it's well known for good reason. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, that's your choice. But as for me, my house will serve the Lord. Joshua is calling Israel to have their own Rahab moment. She had to make a choice one day. Am I serving the false gods of the Canaanites, the people in whose land I live and one of whom I am? Am I going to serve the false gods that are surrounding me? 
Or am I going to devote myself to the one true God of those people over there? And God was calling Israel to that Rahab moment. Do not give your heart, verse 15, to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. And I could say to you by way of application, do not give your heart to the deities that are absolutely inundating Memphis, the Mid-South, and the world in which we live. And whether you do or whether you don't, if Joshua was our guest preacher today, he would say, the choice for me is clear, whatever you choose, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. What about you? Like seriously, what about you? What about now? You live in a land of God belittling idols. You are surrounded by relics to false deities every direction you turn. Our fellow kinsmen worship at the altars of paganism all day long. And like Joshua, today, the Lord is calling you right here, right now, to consider his faithfulness and to choose now, this day, whom you will serve. The resurrection of Jesus, it's a bold line right through the hearts of every human. He's not going to share the place of highest honor with anybody. When the true Joshua conquered all the enemies of God's people and got up from the dead, that's God's declaration to the universe. Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't make him Lord. You don't invite him to be Lord. You don't do anything concerning his Lordship. You bow before him as Lord. And the spirit of God is calling you right now right here, to choose for yourself, who will you serve? Is it conditional on who else also serves him? Jesus, whose name is Joshua, Yahweh is salvation, same name. Will you serve him? Or will you serve the gods of this world? To quote Moses in Deuteronomy, how long are you gonna waffle? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the sermon, and that's the call to respond. The rest of the passage moves really quickly. Israel says, yes. Joshua says, wait a minute. I want to make sure you understand. They say, yes. They strike a covenant, and then Joshua dies. Look at Israel's first yes, verse 16 to 18. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. Verse 18, the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Not only did the people say a resounding yes to the Lord, they said a resounding refusal to every other God. They say in verse 17, this is a strong phrase in Hebrew, far be it from us. May it never be. On pain of death, do we go to any other deity? That's the only acceptable response. Yes to the one true God, no to every false God, no negotiating, no waffling, just clear, unanimous devotion of all of life to the one true Lord. So I'm asking you again. I'm asking you, will you look to Christ right now? Right now and surrender your whole self to the Lord Jesus using the words of verse 18. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. It's a good response. It's a God honoring response. But before you answer that question, let's make sure we understand why Joshua said, wait, 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 wait. Before you're sure about your yes, I, I need to tell you something about him. That's verse 19 to 28. It's our third point, the Godward clarity and the solemn covenant. Verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. One commentator put that passage in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. He summarized it this way, or he, he, he responded to it this way. This is perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. I felt like that. Serve the Lord only, and if you don't, I will. We'll serve him. Hold up. He's holy, he's jealous, he'll never forgive you if you back out on him. This is perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. As soon as the people respond positively to Joshua's call, devote themselves wholly to the Lord, Joshua immediately replies with, you won't be able to serve him, verse 19. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins, verse 19. I, I thought this was a celebratory moment. I thought this was a right response to God that should lead to gladness in the heart of Joshua and him telling him so. And it is a celebratory moment but only insofar as you are sobered by the supremacy of the God that Joshua is talking about. The ground for understanding these phrases, you can't serve him and he won't forgive you, is bound up in the character of God that's in between those two phrases. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Verse 19. One at a time, holiness. He's better than the best thought you've ever had about him. Whatever you're conceiving of him right now may be accurate, but it is not exhaustive. He is totally set apart. There is no one and there is nothing with which you can compare him. He said two times in Isaiah. Besides me, there is no God, Isaiah 45, 5. There is no other God besides me, Isaiah 45, 21. If you ask God what all the other gods are like, God will be silent. He doesn't know any. There are none. Nobody is like him. He is of a quintessential moral purity. His holiness he says in places in the Old Testament is of purer eyes than to even look at iniquity. His holiness doesn't define him. He gives definition to what holiness means. His character is a reflection of his nature. He's in a category by himself. No sin, no stain, no spot, no wrinkle, no shadow, no shifting, no change. Immutably through and through, pure, spotless, blameless, righteous, possessing every single impeccable attribute. Nothing's wrong with him. He is pure. He is perfect. He is holy. He radiates with a glorious brightness that beams out of his thrice holy character. And Israel was to devote herself to him. And if you say you walk in the light, yet don't confess your sin, First John would say, you've never known him. That's why his injunction to Israel that we read Earlier in the service, Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 11.44, God said, be holy. Why? Because the Lord your God is holy. He's a holy God, but he's also a jealous God. Now don't import narcissistic, petty definitions of human jealousy into this perfect character quality of God. God is jealous, but he is not like the jealousy that humans display. This is who he is. This is his nature. It's only right that he's a jealous God because he knows there are no other gods. And if you give your allegiance to a false deity, he loves you enough to not like that. It is right for the one true God to be jealous for the hearts of his people. Not because he's competing against other deities, but because he knows there are none. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, 
am a jealous God. Joshua wanted to make sure Israel understood the terms and conditions of the right response. We will serve the Lord. Wait, 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 wait. He's holy. He's jealous. You can't serve him and he won't forgive you if you embark on this covenant and then you turn your back on him. That's why Jesus answered the Pharisees. You want to know the greatest commandment? Do you really want to know? Number one, there's not a close second. This is it. You get this one wrong. It doesn't matter how many you get right in numbers two and following. Love him. Every fiber of your being, all your heart, every cell in your brain, all your mind, all your strength, everything about everything that belongs to you unashamedly devoted to him. That's the first commandment. You get that one right. The second one will follow that love for him coursing from him into you to all the people around you. He's holy and he's jealous. That's what makes verse 21 so awesome. Having heard the clarion call of their leader to be fully devoted to the Lord, what do they say? No, but we will serve the Lord. So I just got to ask you again, right here, right now, is that your response? If so, verse 22 and 23 say unequivocally, you have to let go of all known sin. That's why we take the Lord's Supper weekly here. It's part of it. It's a repentance exercise. We're not going to Christ's table that represents Christ's death, hanging on to all the sin for which Jesus died. It's a regular invitation to say, no, Jesus, get my grubby hands off of this sin and help me cling to Christ. Joshua said to the people, verse 22, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 23, now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. You cannot hold on to pet sins and follow Jesus. He wants your whole heart. So in verse 24, the people say yet again, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua does a covenant ceremony that's what happens all the way down to verse 27. He enshrines the moment with something tangible that they can go back to in Shechem and say, yes, like Spurgeon, 10 years later, I still love him. Joshua called the people to make a public pledge of themselves to the Lord in the presence of all of God's people. That's what uniting with the local church is in the New Testament. It's a solemn pledge of your life to Christ in conjunction with his people. It's a saying, Joshua 24, essentially, we will serve the same Lord you serve and we'll serve him with you. Then comes one of the most powerful lines in the whole book of Joshua, maybe the whole Old Testament, verse 28. It's just tucked away in there. I drew some attention to it in grow. Then Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance. That's an amazing sentence few chapters before they had no home. Now everybody's got one. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. God gave it to them. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12 to give his descendants that land. And here they are for the first time since Genesis 12, all the way in Joshua 24, verse 28. And Joshua says, time for you guys to go home. I love that. God kept his promises. And after Joshua got done with his sermon, Joshua got done clarifying for these people who are responding well that God is holy and God is jealous. And after Joshua solemnized the moment with this covenant ceremony and sent them each to their own territory, he breathed his last. Verse 29 to 33, tell us about that. 29 to 31 is Joshua's death and burial. What a life. This man, Joshua, had accompanied Moses as a young man into the presence of the Lord he had led Israel through the Jordan River into Canaan, all these victorious military conquests. As he watched day after day, year after year, God just give them the land. And most of all, Joshua kept his heart focused on the Lord for a long, fruitful lifetime. Verse 29 is the first time in the whole book Joshua is called 
the servant of the Lord. That's the first time. 14 times Moses has been called the servant of the Lord. And at the end of a long, fruitful, faithful life, Joshua is designated as one of those people. Then he's buried. He's buried in the promised land. That's got all kinds of significance. And then we're told about two other burials, Joseph and Eleazar. That's how the book ends. That's kind of interesting. Joseph had died a long time before, like 400 years earlier. Why are they just now burying him? Because right before he died, Joseph told his brothers who had sold him into slavery with whom he was reconciled. He told his brothers, when I die, do not bury me in Egypt. Carry my bones to the promised land and you bury me there. Over 400 years later, that agreement was fulfilled in this chapter, verse 32. Hebrews 11 talks about this moment and says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel 400 years later and gave orders concerning his bones. You know what that means? That means Joseph believed in the God that Joshua followed and all of Israel covenanted to also follow. And this is a moment of solidarity saying Joseph had hope in the one true God and he believed his promises for tomorrow even when things looked really, really, really bad. And finally, Eleazar. This guy's mentioned a few times in the book of Joshua. He plays a prominent role in helping to divvy out the territories and the land allotments in the previous chapters. Verse 33 says that he was Aaron's son and then he died. What that means is he was a priest. He was a son of Aaron. That means he spent his earthly life going into the Holy of Holies, making a sacrifice for the people's sins, but now he's dead. I think it's Joshua's way of ending with a man who had spent his earthly life in the presence of God, making sacrifices on behalf of the people of God, who now for the first time is actually in the presence of God with the one who made the sacrifice for the people of God. All of his life and ministry just pointed forward to the one true great high priest who's now seated on heaven's throne. He served the Lord Jesus who was the sacrifice for his own sins. And the book of Joshua ends with one man in God's presence under God's rule and blessing, which is what the book of Joshua is all about. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Guess what Jesus bought for you at Calvary? a forever promised land where God's people will be in God's place under God's rule and blessing in the presence of our Redeemer. So what do we do? I have one application. If I didn't say this, I feel like I'd be a total miss the obvious preacher. What do we say at the end of Joshua? This has been such a good book for my soul. I have one thing. Choose for yourself right now who you will serve. Not a pep rally. I'm not trying to give you a motivational speech. But I'm telling you that the God of the universe gave you this book so that at the end of it, you could have zero argument about his faithfulness. He's faithful. The resurrection of Jesus proves every promise of God is yes. He's faithful. So you have a response. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. This passage about Joshua's death goes on to tell us that Israel served the Lord all the days that they had remaining. But you only have to flip to the next page of your Bible. The book of Judges shows us what happened in the next generation. They turned their back on the Lord. They experienced his judgment. Israel would soon prove unfaithful. And if you're wondering, 
man, I know he's done a lot for a lot of people in a lot of other times and places, but is he really going to keep his promises? If I just bet it all on Jesus right now, is he going to let me down? Do you want to know a rock solid place to stand for an answer to that? An empty tomb. That empty cave says to you, there is not one promise that can fail because the promise keeper emerged alive from the dead, occupies heaven's throne, and very soon he's coming to restore and make all this right again. He wouldn't have told us, pray like this, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's kind of what Joshua looks like at the end. He wouldn't have taught us to pray that if he didn't believe it was gonna happen. And one day, when he comes to fix all this, you'll, be one, you'll want to be one of the people in God's place, under God's rule, with God's presence. But like I started, when a godly man gives kind of his final investment of what he really wants his family to have, I think Joshua 24 shows us God's people, true, the true people of God, they listen. Papa's text thread for all those years, daily devotional, I mean, all those days through this year in his daily devotional just has a few weeks left. The year will end. But that impact's gonna live on for a long time in the lives of the people who've got that steady drip. The conclusion of Joshua reminds us that when a godly man spends the accumulated currency of his life in a call to God's family, to seek God's face, God's children will hear and heed those words. Now you hadn't seen what's happened in anybody else's heart here, but I'm gonna give you a little window to look. Every single person who belongs to the Lord Jesus has said yes to him. Every single time I have said in this sermon, choose today, right here, right now. So if you haven't, we're praying for you. We want you to know him too. And the God who is faithful, his name is God is salvation. Jesus. He wants you to know him more than you want to know him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that for all our stammering and just not knowing how to put it into words, that you'll take your word, the book of Joshua, and you'll plant deep in us the truth of your faithfulness, your kindness. And if we've been those wayward people, we pray Romans 2, 4, that your kindness would lead us to repentance. And for those who've never known you, we pray that you would unveil the reality in Jesus that you are salvation. And for us as a church, as a people, we ask that we would together, not just individually, but like Joshua 24, publicly, unashamedly, with a resounding yes, say, we will serve the Lord. Make us that kind of people. And as we each go to our own territory, I pray that that would be the distinguishing characteristic of our life, that we're your people, that we turn away from all the false deities of this world and we bow in humble joy at the feet of the King of glory, Jesus of Nazareth, in whose name we pray.